Okay, guys. Well, <clears throat> let's turn to Luke chapter 1, uh, back where uh, we were last week. We haven't left this yet. And uh, uh, today, I want to talk about the Spirit will continue, but uh, kind of under the banner of, uh, of, of the whole study that we've done with the Spirit in Christ. Uh, but this time, I just want to start zeroing in on the conception of Christ may not be what you think it is, uh, but I want to kind of capitalize, con- you know, continue to capitalize on some of the titles that are mentioned here. And so I thought what we would do, yes, ma'am. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought somebody said something. Um, I do that at home a lot too with Trish. What? It's just like I didn't say anything. It's just okay. oh, okay. Must be getting old. That's all right. <laughs> the more voices, the better, I suppose. Uh, I guess we can. I guess we can begin in verse uh, thirty of Luke's text here in chapter one. It says, "The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God.' And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end." Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And that for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And so I want to make a big deal out of two, uh, two uh, titles that are being given here for Jesus. One is the Son of God. And the other one is, well, I want to call the son of David uh, or the son of man would be an acceptable uh, uh, word as well. But I'm just capitalizing verse 32 when it says that he will give him the throne of his father, David. And so that's really what what is going on now. I want to kind of draw your attention to a phrase that the angel says here in verse 32 uh, after we talked a little bit about the the, the salvation uh, that the Spirit is working in conjunction with the Son, uh, notice what it says. It says He will be great. Now, I don't know what you what you think about when you know you read that statement. He will be great, and uh, I, I think probably immediately we think about Jesus being great uh, in terms of his earthly fame, right? In terms of his earthly ministry. Uh, and things like that, but I think something else is at work there, uh, mainly because it says not only that he will be the son of the most high, and so ontologically he is great, but also because it says that God is going to give him the throne of his father David. Uh, And so uh, when did he give him the throne of his father David? But in the kingdom of God, right? So when the angel says he will be great, what does the angel have in mind? Uh, I think he has in mind a lot more than just that Jesus will be famous throughout Judea, uh, throughout Galilee, and throughout the regions of Galilee. I think the angel is referring to the greatness of the Son of God in his true greatness as, uh, as the, uh, the high king of heaven, as it were, right? As he comes into his heavenly kingdom. Uh, and all that that entails. So I think there's a lot more there. I think the angel is speaking about his consummate glory, 
the throne uh, should immediately uh, get us to think uh, in that way. And so because when it says he'll give him the throne of his father David, what I'm arguing is that is a reference to the eschatological throne of of Christ. It's, in other words, speaking of his heavenly exaltation at the right hand of God the Father. So the angel kind of sees the whole picture, you see. Uh, and this is another case for my early statement that I made early on, that as the Spirit comes, what he's ushering in is eschatology more than anything. You know, the angel here is thinking eschatologically, you see. Uh, that's that's what's going on. Any Any questions or comments about that, you know? I kind of like that because uh, it shows us that uh, we we would do well to think in big picture, uh, okay? Uh, even as the angel is thinking of the whole enchilada, right? Like Christ upon the throne, you know, Christ exalted, Christ ruling and reigning over his heavenly kingdom. Like that's, uh, that's something we need to keep in our purview at all times, uh, especially when we study uh, theology. Uh, so before we get into these titles, I just quickly wanted to emphasize, go back to the concept of conception and the concept of Jesus uh, being conceived supernaturally. This is now the second supernatural birth that is transpiring. The first one was John the Baptist, right? And uh, we made a big deal, you remember, because it talks over and over about you know, how John the Baptist is going to come in the spirit of Elijah and all of this, right? And so his birth is prophetic, supernatural in that way, uh, all sorts of uh, supernatural things going on there. And then, if you jump down here in Luke, you remember I made the connection um, in verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God, that that was an echo going back to Genesis, uh, oh boy, where's that at? Genesis uh, 18, where the angel uh, of the Lord right, interacting with Abraham and Sarah after they laughed, right, he says, what is too difficult for God, right? And so this is being an echo, this is echoing back to that in a sense. And so it's not a surprise to find supernatural uh, births in Scripture that in a sense sort of image or mirror or prophetically, you know, typify the coming of Christ. And one such area that I thought was really interesting. I kind of went on a tangent, and so I thought, you know what, as is my custom, I will take the class on a tangent with me. Uh, But in Judges 13, uh, some of you guys may not have thought of this uh, and may not even agree at the end of this, but uh, at least to get your appetite going here. In Judges 13, I think we have another sort of supernatural uh, birth, typological birth that parallels the life of Christ, even what we're seeing here, and that is the birth of Samson. If you go to Judges chapter 13, I guess we can go there quickly, but in, in, in the book of Judges, um, Samson is, you know, Samson is, uh, 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 he is listed in the hall of faith, Hebrews uh, chapter 11, yeah. And we have a hard time wrapping our brain around that because, well, Samson was, you know, sensual and he was, you know, immoral and, you know, he did all these things and he was prideful and, you know, all this stuff. Nevertheless, I mean, the way he died seems to exhibit faith, that he had faith in God, that God would give him strength to destroy his enemies. Uh, But if you look at chapter 13, the reason I started thinking in these Christological ways is because of the way that this happens. Again, this is a birth that begins with an angelic theophany, much like Christ's. 
And it says, Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for forty years. Wow. There was a certain man, Zorah, the family of the Danites, or the tribe of Dan, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren. Sound like a familiar story? And had, not, had, no, had born no children. Then uh, the Malak Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now, therefore, be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. Uh, for behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the boy shall be called a Nazarite. Uh, to uh, shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. And so um, the reason why I make the connection with Christ is because here you have an episode where uh, Samson is to be protected from the womb, uh, and from the womb he is to be consecrated and kept holy, uh, much like Jesus, who is the holy thing or the holy child, in Mary's womb, uh, they are to be careful to watch over the womb of uh, Manoah's wife, uh, that nothing bad enter into the womb. In other words, uh, don't drink, what does it say? Uh, drink, don't drink wine or strong drink. So in other words, nothing that would jeopardize the womb of this woman is to enter into this woman, you see, to keep this child from being uh, harmed in any way. Uh, so I have a series of things here. Samson was born for the purpose of redemption. Even as we read there uh, at verse 5 at the end, he says, he shall begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. And so deliverance from from the Philistines in Scripture is constantly sort of prophetic. Uh, It is typological of how uh, God's people will be delivered from their enemies. And that's ultimately something that Jesus Christ did for us. Uh, throughout his life, Samson was marked and characterized by the Spirit, for example, to do miracles or feats of extraordinary strength. We all know the stories, right? He rips a lion apart, right? He does all these things. He kills how many people with a, a, a donkey's jawbone, you know, all this stuff. And so that shows that the Spirit had come upon him for miraculous signs. Uh, I would say uh, what we have in Samson is almost like a like what we have in Christ, with the miracles of Christ, what are they? They are signs of the age to come that are breaking into this world, you see? And so Samson, too, is kind of like the, uh, he, he is the spirit-empowered messenger of God, uh, emissary of God, <laughs> who is given the spirit in the supernatural fashion, you know, certainly. And so I think that's what's going on. Uh, here he said uh, also he is led by the spirit he grew in favor with god uh, even as christ did uh, likewise christ uh, like christ samson became a sport of his enemies that's true right i mean just like uh, samson jesus was mocked and ridiculed by his enemies the spirit of god came upon samson for the destruction of god's enemies and what's the purpose is it just to have a fun uh, you know, a kid's story, a Sunday school story, you know what I mean? Like, well, Eden already knows the story of Samson, you know, how he, you know, broke down the pillars and the house fell and killed a bunch of people. Great stories for little kids, you know. Uh, but is that what it's all about? It's just for Sunday school tales? No. What, what do you think, what do you think Samson killing the Philistines is all about? Deliverance, Deliverance from Israel. 
And so that Israel's delivered, and what's the point? Oh, very good. Very good. I like that because it gets, it gets us thinking ahead, right? And so the way that I like to phrase it is that, um, where is it at? Samson, um, the Spirit came upon Samson for the destruction of God's enemies and, therefore, for the advancement of God's kingdom interests. So in other words, everything is in order to protect the kingdom of God, you see? And so typologically, that's exactly uh, what we find in Christ. Also, though, however, we have to understand, always remember when you're, when you're thinking about typology, uh, there's two ways that typology works, right? Similarity and contrast, right? So uh, that's the way typology works, right? Uh, contrast is a lot of times it's a principle of the uh, lesser to the greater. And so you have Jesus saying this all the time about himself, right? Somebody greater than you know, Solomon is here. Something greater than the temple is here. You know, somebody greater than the prophets is here. You know, somebody greater than Jonah is here, right? So it's not, there's a limit to which the typology functions, okay? Jesus is not just another Adam. He's greater than Adam. Uh, Jesus is not just another David. He is greater than David, you see? So they're similar, right? Samson is similar to Jesus in a sense, right? But he, there's also a contrast. What's the big one? What's the big, big distinction between Samson and Jesus? Yeah, that's right. Jesus never sinned. Jesus was perfectly obedient. He never gave in to temptation. He passed temptation. He passed probation. So how does the story of Samson end? This is how it ends. It ends with Israel searching and looking for another judge, right? For a greater judge, somebody who will rule Israel with righteousness, in righteousness, you see, and not fall into the folly of Samson. And I think that that's exactly what arrives in Jesus Christ. Uh, so I, I think, uh, in other words, the gospel narratives are all connected back to stories like this uh, just to show us, to, to prepare us, really, the Old Testament preparing us for the birth of Christ, that it is another uh, theophanic uh, episode in the history of redemption. Only now we have the arrival not just of a judge, uh, not just of a human king, uh, not just of a child of promise, I'm thinking of Isaac, uh, like that, uh, but now we have the arrival of the Son of God and of the Son of David. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously I agree, right? The law uh, and the stories in the Old Testament are leading us to Christ. The schoolmaster in Galatians is mainly showing us how, uh, uh, really showing us the limitations of the law, right? How that the law is only for preparation, right? It cannot lead us to the gospel, right? It, It cannot provide the righteousness that we need. So in that sense, it conditions us for the gospel and for Christ, uh, but uh, the volume of the book is written of him, you know. So, I, um, what about the Son of God? When we talk about the Son of God, what are we talking about? Well, I want to point out several things here. 
uh, in terms of the Son of God, I guess we'll come over here. Number one, he is divine. That kind of uh, is uh, simple. Number two, he is holy. Uh, what's my third one here? I have somewhere. Ah, yeah, and we looked at this already, but he is also the Savior in light of these things. But the fact that he is divine, right, uh, obviously we know that uh, as, uh, as the Son of God, this places him in direct identity uh, with the divine, well, what we could call the divine logos. And where is that at? Yeah, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, right? And uh, uh, any other places that speak of the deity uh, of the Son of God? Uh, yeah, Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, uh, yeah, let's say 15 through uh, 17. All kinds of different places that really stress uh, the deity, or the divinity of the Son of God, and uh, and yeah, so uh, this is very important because uh, this puts us back into contact with God's original purpose, God's original plan. Everything that he purposed for Jesus Christ is on the basis of the fact that he is the Son of God. And so like you have in the book of Hebrews, right, that the Son of God is the climax of all revelation, and the Son of God is the pattern of Melchizedek, and the Son of God, right, is the one who uh, ascended to the right hand of the Father. And so that just puts us right back in that, that, that whole thing. And also what it does is it shows us that Jesus was also the member, and because he is divine, he's also part of the divine council. So turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 17, right? Um, John chapter 17. So the one who has come on covenantal mission is the one who participated in covenantal counsel with God. Uh, that's really important. And here is a text you guys really know already. But it says, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, even as you have gave him authority over all flesh. Uh, So the son of God is the one who has all authority. He says to all whom you have given him, he, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Uh, Oh, boy, that's a lot of. That's a lot right there, you know, but eternal life is uh, something that people get confused. Eternal life uh, to some people is only uh, something that happens in the future, like maybe when you die. But we know that eternal life is something that is already not yet, right? It's something that we inherit upon being born again. We enter into eternal life. Uh, Consequently, eternal life is the highest quality of life that that a person can have, is eternal life. Uh, And then, of course, that ushers us in into uh, the experience of eternal life in heaven. And then he says that uh, this is eternal life, that you may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so according to this, eternal life uh, is comprised of a knowledge of God, uh, of a saving knowledge of God. We could even say a covenantal knowledge of God. That is what it means to have eternal life. He says, I glorified you on earth... Well, why, what does that mean? Well, I think it's explained by the appositional statement that follows next. Apposition meaning same thing. Having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. That's why that's important. And that's why the Son of God language is important. Is because the, uh, the Spirit, as he conceives Christ, right? what is he doing? He's bringing into the world the Son of God 
who is the divine word, the divine logos. Of course, we know all of that. But he's also the one who was sent on this mission uh, by the Father. Uh, and so again, that kind of leads us back to, you guys will really get this by the time we're done here, but the covenant of redemption. Remember? Uh, re- no, no, that's not right. Re- My wife always tells me, write slow. No one's in a rush. Except for me. Yeah, that, that leads us back to the covenant of redemption. It's like that intra-Trinitarian covenant whereupon it was decided that Jesus, well, later Jesus, but the Son, the divine Logos, would come into the world for this purpose. That's what Jesus is talking about here when he says, I have accomplished the work that which you have given me to do. And so when did he give him the work to do it? Well, long before he came. That's the point. He says, so now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, uh, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So who is being conceived in the womb of Mary? Uh, the one who comes from the realm of glory, you see? And that's why the spirit of glory or the glory spirit is attending to him because he's bringing him from the realm of glory into the realm of sin. And in order to bring him into the realm of sin, he has to protect him. He has to overshadow him. Uh, isn't it remarkable that Jesus comes into the world, uh, he comes into a sinful world through a sinner, right? And yet is, does not become sinful, <laughs> right? Or even further than that. He comes into a sinful world through a sinful purpose in order to die for that sinner's sin, <laughs> right? It's just remarkable uh, each way that you look at this. Uh, but uh, therefore, uh, what do you guys think? Um, what do you guys think about that? Any questions, comments, statements? Yeah? Person. Person. Yes, yeah. Mary, yeah. who is a sinner. How do we know that Mary was a sinner? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's right. She needs salvation, right? Perfect people uh, don't need salvation. Yeah. So it's not an immaculate conception, right? Uh, it's a sinless conception, and, and that by the Holy Spirit. And uh, so uh, let's go back to Luke real quick. Um, Luke chapter 1. That's who she is bringing into the world is the Son of God. Uh, as the Son of God, consequently, uh, He is... Uh, he is... Uh, we could put it this way. He is the Creator. Uh, he is... Um, let's see. What did I, did I write that down? Oh, yes, of course. You guys know this. He is the Redeemer. Right? We know that. And, watch this now. So he is the consummator. I'm sure there's two M's in there, but whatever. He's creator, redeemer, and consummator of the world. That's who's coming into the world in the Son of God. You see? Because when he comes into the world, he comes into the world in order to, in order to uh, consummate the ages. And so we have, like, for example, in terms of consummation, Hebrews chapter 9, I think it's verse 26, Right? that Christ comes when? At the consummation of the ages. In other words, it is his purpose to wrap it all up, right? And through him, he will. He will <laughs> he, he, he'll wrap up the entire plan of God, the entire uh, plan of redemption. Uh, um, yeah, and so, and because also he is divine, we're not even on holy yet, but because he is divine, 
Uh, in terms of the Spirit, uh, what about the Spirit? Well, He is two things. He is the possessor of the Spirit, and He is the dispenser of the Spirit. That, that's a very important thing. So we looked at the first one quite a bit, that He is the possessor of the Holy Spirit. We saw that all sorts of texts, like what? Uh, like, for example, Isaiah 40, uh, 42, verse 1. Also, Isaiah 66, verses 1 through 3. You have repeatedly, right, Isaiah emphasizing that the Spirit of the Lord will be, what? Upon him, right? So he will have the Spirit. Uh, here, turn to a controversial text before Luke. Go to John 3. Go to John chapter 3. I was racking my brain on this last night. There's an issue in the Greek text here. And John chapter 3, oh, I don't know, verse 34. Uh, somebody read that for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He who, what? For he, for he whom God has sent, that's the Son, the language of sending, you see that there? speaks the words of God. <clears throat> How does he do that? For he, there's the controversy. Who is the he? <whistles> For he gives the Spirit without measure. Who, 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 who is the, who, who is the, come on now. Who is the he, you great exegetes that reside in this Sunday school class? Who is the he in the text? Huh? I don't know that I'm going to solve this today, but uh, it's obviously a debate between the Father and the Son. Uh, the majority of uh, <clears throat> commentators identify the Father. Yeah. The Father is the dispenser of the Spirit. And what they point to is verse 35 as an epexegetical explanation, in other words, of the phrase, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand, including uh, to be the possessor of the Spirit. Basically, the Messiah endowed, uh, the Spirit endowed Messiah, right? is something that the Father has given to the Son. I don't know. I'm not convinced. I have to spend some time looking at that. I don't even want to go back and see what I preach because I preach this. You know? I don't think anyone was there for this. Maybe my parents, maybe my sister. John chapter 3, that was... What year was that? John chapter 3? 2009. Anyway. <clears throat> um, what? <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, uh, let's just go with that interpretation, Okay. That that <laughs> let's agree with D. A. Carson with uh, uh, Kostenberger with uh, uh, with uh, uh, Smalley Word Biblical Commentary uh, and with Leon Morris. Let's go with those guys because those guys are real better scholar than any of us. So let's say they're all right. Okay, even D. A. Carson kind of left it a little bit open because you could see the tension building in that commentary. Anyway, so 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 let's just say yeah, he's the one who possesses the spirit, and how does he possess the spirit without measure? It's just 
remarkable. So by virtue of his divine identity, the Son of God being conceived in the womb of Mary will be the divine Logos incarnate. And as the divine Logos, he is, he is the creator, he is the redeemer. We know that based on John chapter 17, 1 through 5, and many places where it says redeemer. You ever think of a verse and you just can't find it? Like it's right there. I was open air preaching in, uh, where was that? UNT? And this, and I said, Jesus died on the tree. And the student, after many obscenities, said, no, he did not. doesn't say that in the Bible. He said, yes, it does. And my brain just froze, and I'm just like, yeah, it says it's somewhere in there. (laughs) Just like, I don't know where, but it does, you know. I know it's there. And, of course, it's in... uh, it's in Galatians chapter 3, uh, and it's in Acts chapter 5. Peter says he died on the tree. So anyway, but you get that, that moment where you kind of freeze up, you know, as to where something's at. So, so you know, uh, creator, redeemer, and he is the consummator of all things. So the Son of God is sent on covenantal mission to bring in the consummation of the ages. That's why he's here, you see. And... As the divine Son of God, he is also the possessor and the dispenser of the Spirit. He has the Spirit without measure, and then he also gives the Spirit. So here's another question. Where does it say that Jesus gives the Spirit, y'all? Oh, okay, that's good. I believe you. Only because I think uh, John, what was it, 16 what? 7, also 15, 26. That's another good one. Uh, what about 20? Oh, where's that at? I have it here. Uh, uh, 2022. What's 2022? This is a big one, by the way. <laughs> Put a little asterisk right here. Receive ye the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is breathing upon his people to receive the Holy Spirit. It's just a remarkable, uh, yeah, it's remarkable. I think you have to, oops, I think you have to uh, correlate this with uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verse, what is it, 45, where it says that Jesus became a life-giving spirit himself. Just amazing. Uh, So yeah, he is the one that gives the spirit uh, to his people. Uh, and so John fifteen twenty six twenty twenty two Acts chapter 1, verse 5, he promises the Spirit there. Um, many different places where uh, also uh, even here in Luke or in the gospel narratives, right, we have uh, this controversial statement that is made in chapter 3, uh, verse 16. If you read verse 16, what does it say? He says, you know, John says, I baptize you with water, but one is coming mightier than I am. I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Whew. What does that mean? Bapt- baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Okay, we know what baptize you with the Holy Spirit is. Well, some people know what that is. Other people, you know, say that's something else. But, uh, you know, Pentecostals say the baptism of the Holy Spirit is only manifested when, you know, things happen like you speak in tongues or something like that. Uh, but no, he, this is just speaking about salvation. In other words, this is like a reference to regeneration, uh, a spiritual baptism, in other words. Uh, but it's, the, it's the, uh, the issue of fire that is the question. How, how, what is the reference to fire there? 
is it a fire of judgment? Is it a fire of zeal? You can hear sermons, right? The preacher, fire! You know? <laughs> He's going to baptize you with fire. You're going to burn for the Lord, right? And so, and, and maybe that's people are like, yes, yes. Uh, and maybe Acts chapter two, uh, where it says in the upper room, it says the Spirit came and there was tongues of fire above the disciples, sort of enigmatic of God's. Uh, yeah, God's redemptive power working in God's people. And so you see all these various applications uh, to the Son of God language. This is who's coming into uh, the world. One more connection, okay? The Son of God is also, what did I put? Oh, yes. He is also holy. Everybody got all this, right? As always. As always. Uh, So, uh, what does it say? Go back to Luke chapter 1. And what does it say? It says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the Holy Child. Remember, we kind of made a big deal out of this. Uh, The word child is not in the text. That's a translation. Anybody have something different than child? What is it? Is that what your translation says? What what translation do you have? God bless the New King James. I knew there was something about that translation. I knew that was my translation for 10 years for a reason. <clears throat> no, 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 no. Both are acceptable. The Holy One. Wow, that's the King James trying to be even more literal. You see that? Because really in the Greek text, it's just the Holy Right, The holy shall be called the Son of God. Wow. So what's Luke trying to emphasize is that what is being conceived in the birth of Mary, the Son of God, is holy. And of course, um, that certainly brings us into the idea uh, that Jesus will be sinless. Why is it important for Jesus to be sinless? Huh? Yeah, that's right. Sacrifice. Right, 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 right. And so uh, I guess that's a negative way of speaking about it, right? He will not have sin. Uh, Positively, he is holy or he is righteous, right? Uh, So important for Jesus to be righteous, you guys. When uh, I was listening to a podcast and they were talking about Jake Gretchen Machen. Jake Gretchen Machen was the founder of Westminster Theological Seminary, broke away from Princeton Theological Se- Seminary when Princeton went liberal but, uh, and wrote a book called Liberalism, uh, Christianity and Liberalism. But Machen, when he was dying, wanted so much to make sure that he died believing only in the righteousness of Christ as the basis for his acceptance before God. He wanted to make sure that he did not die with an ounce of trust in his own works. And boy, did he have works. He started Westminster. I mean, he was, you know, he, he, he uh, you know, Machen, uh, you know, did all these incredible things to help Christianity. And all the things that he did to help Christianity was not the righteousness upon which he will be saved. You see what I'm saying? 
the righteousness upon he, which he will be saved, he wanted to know for a fact. And so he spent a, a, a great chunk of that period of time towards the end of his life making sure that he understood the positive righteousness of Jesus Christ. Right? He understood that Jesus was his righteousness, you see, and that he was not righteous apart from Christ in any way whatsoever. Uh, and this is what the Holy Child is all about, is that he will come as the righteous son of God. Now, uh, somebody read Luke chapter 3, verse 38. Because when we say son of God, uh, this is not a new word, right? It's not a new term in a sense, right? Many son of gods, even in pagan literature, Greek mythology, there are sons of gods, okay, things like that. Even in the Bible, uh, people are called God's son, right? Uh, what does it say? Somebody read it. The Who? son of Enoch, the son of Seth, the son of David, the son, the son of Adam, the son of God. That's right. So Adam, in the same book, just a little bit later, Adam is called what Jesus is called. Right? Even as Jesus is called the son of God, begotten of God, Adam is called the son of God, begotten of God, in other words, right? Why is that important? Because, as we know, uh, that part of Jesus' uh, righteousness is the fact that he is connected to Adam. And so the Adamic typology comes to the ground. What is necessary as a result of Adam, the son of God, and his sin, another son of God. So we need the righteous son of God uh, to, to come. And so that introduces us to one of my pet peeves of doctrine that I love to talk about. Uh, endless. Uh, Trish and I, we were up late last night talking about some of these things. And I mean, you know, uh, it was so beautiful. She's crying. I mean, she cries for everything, but she was crying and, and just thinking about how grand all of this is you know i really try to impress her with what i'm studying you know because i need encouragement you know inside trish is an easy victim (laughs) so so uh i got to this issue of the edemic situation and how the spirit uh is working on in a sense the second adam just remarkable to think about the spirit is bringing about the second adam bringing the second adam into the World And that immediately connects us to these Adamic and Edenic themes. And I thought, you know, I know for certain, you know, R.C. Sproul says once a year, he always makes sure he writes down on a piece of paper 10 things he knows for certain. Right? Well, before he was, now he knows everything for certain. (laughs) All his theology is uh, straightened out now. Um, I know for certain that uh, the Garden of Eden is the key to the Bible in a major way uh, that is essential for us to understand the significance and the role of Eden. The theology, in other words, of protology is absolutely essential. Uh, for example, isn't it amazing that uh, not just like in, in, in the Garden of Eden, you have the reference to the Tree of Life, you have the reference to the Two Rivers, you have the reference to the precious stones. All of those things repeated again in Revelation, right? So tying us together, 
right? So it's like the Bible begins with the tree of life and ends with the tree of life. Now, this is what I thought was remarkable as we're thinking about the Holy Spirit and his connection to all of this. Uh, maybe something that you have overlooked, my dear friends. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. What does it say? Well, it says that the Holy Spirit is the revealer of all these things, <laughs> which I thought was remarkable. You know this verse, right? And you usually stop short, I think, of like listening to the warning of Jesus. But what is the content? What's the content of the warning? He who has an ear, let him hear what the what? Spirit is saying to the churches. And we probably all have that verse in our head. But here, verse 7, what is the Spirit saying to the churches? Huh? He says, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So the Spirit is the one that is revealing the significance and the nature of protology and its impact on our eschatological hope, our hope, our future, uh, our theology, of course. And so, um, any questions about that? Uh, I thought it was very profound to see the Spirit, uh, the Spirit as the revealer uh, of this word here, uh, dealing with Adam and Eden and, and all of that. Um, consequently, it is also the Spirit, Revelation twenty two seventeen. it is the Spirit who invites us into heaven, which I thought was really remarkable because he's not found very much uh, like active in the book of Revelation. But there at the very end of Revelation, what does it say? The Spirit and the bride say, come, and then he says, come and uh, partake of what? Partake of the water of life. Right, freely without cost, which I think also water of life uh, goes back to themes of the river there in uh, in Eden that gives life to everything in God's garden. But um, this supports the notion that what Adam failed to usher in was an eschatological advancement in the spirit. It is precisely this glory spirit advancement that the last Adam procures for the elect. That's right. And so what's going on here is that by the spirit, the son of God, the last great son of God is coming into the world for what purpose? In order to accomplish what Adam failed to do, which was what? To give his people the spirit, to usher them into the spirit and to advance them in the spirit into the kingdom of God. That's what's going on. Let me give you one text on this. Ephesians chapter 2. And you guys, do me a favor, do some study on this. Look into this yourself, because we don't have time here. Um, Remember, I told you several Sunday schools ago, and this is true, too, of, well, especially here, as we get to the Son of David, which you know I'm not going to get to today. But uh, when we get to this, uh, one of the things that, uh, that the Messiah is, is that he is the temple... Uh, builder, okay? Zechariah, for example, chapter 6, verses 12 through 13, that would be a perfect place where you can go and look at that, right? The branch, uh, the Messiah, 
the messianic branch. He will branch out, and what will he do? He will build the temple of the Lord. What temple is he talking about? Not an architectural temple. He is speaking of a spiritual dynamic, a spiritual body or a spiritual temple to God. That's what he's doing. And and uh, you can see this, for example, in here in Ephesians. He says, so then you are no longer, verse 19, I'm sorry, Ephesians two nineteen. You are no longer strangers and aliens, your fellow citizens with the saints, and are of the household and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself, the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, and so now all of a sudden we're all a building all together, being fitted together, is growing into a holy what? A holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Isn't that remarkable? So by virtue of our... I don't even... Yeah, I don't have time to exegete that, but... but Because um, see, if, if you wanted to study this further, you have to determine what it means, what that prepositional phrase means there when it says, built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And so what is that? What does that in the spirit refer to? Yeah. Yeah. Any questions, observations? Uh, Let me read this to you and then we'll close. The spirit's superintendence over the womb of Mary for the securing of the holy child and his coming into the world was ultimately sacrificial preparation. In other words, guys, the spirit as he brings the divine child into the world who is holy is bringing him in for the purpose of sacrifice. And so the Spirit, in a sense, is preparing the sacrifice of God. Uh, Jesus' sinless nature was for the sake of being the sinless sacrifice of his people. The Son of God was the Lamb of God to take away sin. Notice again that it is the Spirit who is signifying the sacrificial necessity of the sinless sacrifice of Christ on behalf of his people for eternal redemption. Uh, where do I get that from? I get that from Hebrews chapter 9. Um, what verse was that? Ah, 8. You might want to write that down because it's almost like a commentary on exactly what's going on here. When the Spirit is bringing the sacrifice into the world, uh, He is signifying the necessity for a sinless sacrifice. And so that's what's happening and so I get that from Hebrews 9, verse 8. Um, what, what's the context really quick here? Uh, the context is the function of the types and shadows of the Old Covenant, the sanctuary, the instruments, the furniture, all of that. And then it says, the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. So in other words, with all these uh, Old Testament types and shadows, according to the book of Hebrews, that's the Spirit speaking. (laughs) And the Spirit is saying what? He is signifying that the way to the true tabernacle has not yet been opened. Why? Because the true sacrifice has not yet come. And so the Spirit is preparing us for the arrival of, of the ultimate sacrifice that can take away sins, not the blood of bulls and goats. And so what was the birth of Jesus? It was a preparation for the ultimate sacrifice. Uh, It's just amazing, right? Like the Spirit protecting and hovering over the womb of Mary in order to safeguard the sacrifice for the people that were uh, 
you know, that were elect. It's all about election, man. You know, you can't get away from it, you know, like that's why the son and the spirit and the father do everything that they do is because they have by oath and by covenant bound themselves to the commitment of saving the elect people for the kingdom of God. Right. Uh, It's not haphazard. Right. I don't know what it was. I mean, I think when I first became a Christian, I was just born, born again, Armenian, I guess. I just immediately Armenian in my thinking, you know what I mean? And so I thought, oh, you know, like, you know, I just hope a lot of people get saved, you know what I mean? Because it's almost like an open-ended thing. Like, we don't know what's going to happen here, you know? Like, who's going to, who's God going to save, you know? Can he save, you know? <laughs> you know, that type of thing. It's like, no, it's like God has already decreed and elect people. And that's hard. Uh, I talked about this at UNT. I tell you what, man, students want to know about election and sovereignty. No one is talking to them about it, you know? Uh, somebody said, do you believe in free will? I said, no. And the whole place just erupted. You guys thought, we got it on video. Everybody just exploded. <laughs> you know, it's like, first of all, it's like, you care about biblical doctrine. Anyway, you know? Why do you care so much, you know, uh, if you don't believe it, right? Okay, guys, so before it gets any later, let's, uh, let's head to worship.